And we're going to spend just a little bit of time in that particular passage. Nehemiah chapter 2, verses 1 through 8. Let's listen as we hear the word of God. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when, uh, when wine was before him, I, that's Nehemiah, I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now, I had not been sad in his presence, and the king said to me, why is your face sad, seeing you're not sick? This is nothing but sadness of the heart. Then I was very much afraid. I said to the king, let the king live forever. Why should not my face be sad when the city, uh, the place of my father's graves lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? Then the king said to me, what are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven and I said to the king, if it pleases the king and if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. And the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, how long will you be gone and when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king, let letters be given me to the governors of the province beyond the river, that they may let me pass through until I come to Judah. And a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress of the temple and for the walls of the city and for the house that I shall occupy. And the king granted me what I asked for, for the good hand of my God was upon me. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. So let me give you just a brief recap of where we are in the story so far. Uh, one of the wonderful things about some, uh, so many of the books in the, in the Old Testament is that they tell a story. And there's a, there's a narrative that we can, that we can follow along. Uh, all of us, I think, are people who love stories. Uh, from our earliest times, we, we've heard stories. Uh, for many of us, our, our parents, our, our grandparents, our aunts and uncles, people that were, were special to us, they would often tell us stories. Some stories they made up. Some stories were stories about their lives. And, but stories speak to us in very, very deep ways. And so many, so much rather, of what we read in the Old Testament and in the New Testament is rooted in narrative. And it's, a, it's truly a way that we can engage and that we can connect with the text. And we find in these two books, Ezra and Nehemiah, a story of the, the return of exiles and resettlement uh, in the land of, of Judah, particularly in and around the city of Jerusalem. So this story has, has begun in chapter 1 with this man called Hanani uh, who comes to the city of Susa and he reports the state that he finds Jerusalem in. And what happens at that point is Nehemiah, when he hears this story, he is utterly, utterly devastated. And he spends a significant period of time, no less than four months of time 
in a state of confession, of mourning, of prayer, and of preparation. And it's during this particular period that it becomes clear to him that God has a task for him and for him alone. And that task is to return to Jerusalem and to begin to, to rebuild the walls of the city. Now, he has this task that's, that's set before him, but he, he doesn't know the appropriate time for him to begin on this task. We talked about this last week. And so he waits and he continues in prayer. He continues in his prayers of confession. He continues in his prayers seeking guidance. And during this entire period, as well as continuing with the work that he has to do, but as we've talked about, Nehemiah is a slave uh, to uh, King Artaxerxes. And during this period, he waits for the right moment for him to tell the king or to ask the king's permission to go back to Jerusalem to continue and or rather to, to begin the work of rebuilding the walls. And we find in this section that we read that we find Nehemiah in something of an unguarded moment. He has never been sad, as we talked about last week before the king, and in this unguarded moment his countenance is down he's sad the weight of everything that he's been considering in this particular moment is upon him and the king happens to turn and glance at him and sees that something is amiss so it's an unguarded moment for nehemiah but let me suggest that it's not simply an unguarded moment, but more specifically, it's a God-guided moment. For God's hand is clearly in that particular moment. For that's the moment that Nehemiah has been waiting for, for him to be able to open up his heart and his desires to the king. And it's in that moment that he is able to go ahead. And he acknowledges that this is is not just something that's happened by chance, but the permission of the king comes only because the good hand, as we read at the end of verse 8, for the good hand of my God was upon me. And he's able to return to Jerusalem and start the work of rebuilding. Now, one of the things that we talked about last week was the importance of, of prayer. We talked about a season of prayer we talked about sudden prayer and we talked about a solution that is discovered, if you like, through the process of prayer. And I want to spend a little bit more time today thinking about prayer. And there's two things I want us to consider today. First of all, I want us to, to think about the, the, the power of pervasive prayer. The power of pervasive prayer. And the second thing I want us to talk about is the importance of the practice of prayer okay there's only two points today we're not doing a third couldn't come up with another one but i could if i need to but we're only going to we're only going to do two so one of the things that i don't know if you've noticed i know i've asked you to take some time and read through the the entire book of nehemiah it's 13 very short chapters there's lots and lots of lists of people's names mentioned in those chapters. And next week, we're going to talk about something about the significance of some of those names anyway. Um, but what I, what I hope 
if you have had the opportunity to read through Nehemiah, is to see something that's very, very particular. Already in these, the first chapter, in these first few verses of the second chapter, we found two occasions of prayer. We find in the first chapter this season of prayer that we talked about, this four-month period where uh, Nehemiah is entirely before the Lord. He's opening up his heart. He's laying himself bare for these four months, and he's praying to the Lord, show me your way. Forgive us our sins. Lead us in the path that you would have us go in. Give me an opportunity that I might speak to the king and go and do this work that you've called me to do. We find in chapter 2 what, what has been called uh, uh, the type of prayer is an arrow prayer, is a, a quick prayer that's shot up to God in a particular moment. We find uh, Nehemiah making this particular type of, of prayer. When the king says, what are you requesting? Nehemiah simply says, well, in that moment I prayed to the Lord God of heaven. He wanted to make sure that the Lord's hand continued to be upon him before he opened his mouth, before he said a single thing. This book has 13 chapters. And in these 13 chapters, we find 10 separate occasions where Nehemiah prays very, very specifically. Some are prayers uh, like we have in chapter 2. It's an arrow prayer. It's something very, very brief, something very, very short. And we have two particular prayers, like the one we saw in chapter 1. There's another in chapter 9 that take up the better part of a whole chapter. And the very last words of the book form a, a, a prayer where Nehemiah asks God to remember the good work that Nehemiah has done, despite the continuing unfaithfulness of God's people. He's done what God asked him to do He's been faithful in his calling. Oh, the people have not gone in the direction necessarily that God has been calling them to go, and that's a continued problem. If you read through the Old Testament, it's a continued problem. And if you read through the New Testament, you'll find it's a continuing problem for folks in the church. And if you look at church history, you'll find it's a continuing problem for people in the church. But Nehemiah is a faithful servant who prays, Lord, remember the good that you have done through me. So in these 13 chapters, we find 10 different types and different mentions of prayer. So we find this idea of the power of pervasive prayer. If you want to know how to pray, read the book of Nehemiah. You've got prayers of confession. You've got prayers of mourning. You've got prayers affirming who God is. You've got prayers retelling the story. You've got brief prayers. You've got long prayers. You've got prayers looking to participate in what God's blessing. You've got prayers looking to be held in God's hand, even, even in the face of perceived or actual failure. You've got all these types of prayers. So if you want to know how to pray, read the book of Nehemiah. If you think you know already how to pray, then Nehemiah is going to set you straight because you may not have it quite mapped out as you'd expect. If you think you can't pray, then Nehemiah will remind you that God can and will hear you no matter who or what 
you are. The great Scottish expository preacher Eric Alexander speaks of this book as revealing the power of what he calls prevailing prayer. But I much prefer the word pervasive. The power of pervasive prayer. Because the whole book of Nehemiah is saturated with prayer. It's everywhere. There's nothing that Nehemiah does that's not saturated with prayer. Before he does anything, he prays. While he's doing his work, he prays. And once the work is done, he prays. If nothing else, Nehemiah shows us that prayer is not just a, a, a glib, a perfunctory thing that we do at the beginning and at the end of meetings. Rather, prayer is the very breath of the one who belongs to God. I don't know if, uh, if any, I'm sure most of you are familiar with the, the old style diving suits. You know, the ones that are made of canvas, right? And you've got the big brass helmet that's locked in place. And now, nowadays, folks don't wear those types of things. There's the, there's the self-contained uh, apparatus, the scuba system that people have now, right? I think, you know, I, I, Sean McBurney's a, a, a tra training or trained licensed scuba diver. Uh, but in, back in the day, when people needed to do deep sea diving, they wore these canvas suits with great big boots and brass helmets, and they would go down into the water. But they had no way of breathing. They didn't have a type of system that contained pressurized air that could be released and used to help them breathe. What they had to do was have a large hose that, that was attached to the surface. And on the ship, they would have someone with a bellows that was pumping air down that hose. So the diver, the suit would be somewhat inflated and they would have enough air to breathe and enough pressure that the water would be able to stay outside of the canvas suit. It was that connection with the surface, with the air that gave them life. And that, my dear friends, is what prayer is for the Christian. Someone once said that prayer is the breath of the Christian. It's what keeps us connected <coughs> excuse me, with our Lord. Prayer is the breath of the Christian. When we breathe, <laughs> if we stop breathing, we die. It's a sign that there's no longer life within us. If we're in an environment where there is no oxygen, and no breathable air, then we will surely die. It's what keeps us alive. And in the same way, this connection, this prayer that we have, keeps us alive as Christians. It's something that is pervasive. It's something that we must continue to do. You, you, some of you, I'm sure, uh, have heard stories or know of, 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 of people for whom prayer has been something that has been absolutely vital. I think of two stories very briefly to share with you. First of all, uh, I'm sure many of you have heard of the name uh, St. Augustine or Augustine, however you would choose to pronounce that. Uh, he was uh, one of the great saints in the church. Uh, he, uh, um, many, many years ago, uh, he wrote many works and he stood against uh, heresies in the church and became one of the foremost teachers in the church in his time and still remains one of the foremost teachers in the church today, both in the Roman Catholic Church and in the Protestant uh, branches, uh, Reformed branches of the church as well. 
Um, Augustine was not always a Christian. Uh, he, was a, he was a man who led quite a wild life and was very, very far from God for much of his, much of his youth into his 20s. His mother was a woman called Monica. And Monica was someone who had come to faith in Jesus Christ. And she loved her son, and she wanted her son to know Jesus as his Savior and as his Lord. And she shared the love of Jesus with him as best she could, and he wanted to have nothing at all to do with this, and kept on rebuffing this uh, desire of his mother to become a Christian. But Monica prayed fervently. She constantly prayed for her son that he would come to faith in Jesus Christ. And on one occasion, Augustine was in a particular place, and there were a group of, of children playing a children's game. And the game had this refrain that kept on coming up, tolly leggy, tolly leggy, tolly leggy. And they would repeat these, the, this particular phrase, tolly leggy. It's Latin. It means take up and read, take up and read. And this phrase, this, uh, these words, they sat within Augustine. And he didn't know really what they, they intended other than in this particular game, but he was in a particular place and he had access to a book. And that book was the Bible. And this refrain continued in his mind. And, and as he was meditating on this refrain, tolly leggy, tolly leggy, he took up the Bible. And he read the Bible. And he came to faith in Jesus Christ as his Savior and as his Lord. His mother had prayed fervently that that would happen. And it did happen because of her pervasive prayer. I could tell a similar story. I won't because we're running short of time about my, about my father. My father had a very wild youth. And my grandparents, they were missionaries in Africa. My father was raised in, in Malawi. Uh, he, he uh, had, again, had a very, very wild youth. And my, my grandmother and grandfather prayed for him fervently that he would come to know Jesus as his Savior and as his Lord. And they came, they came back to Scotland. Uh, my, my father was, was, a, was a heavy drinker. Um, he would often find himself, he, he had a friend who was in the police, for the local police force, and uh, he would often find himself on a, on a bender, and um, his, his friend, the police officer, would find him in the streets, and rather than bringing him home to his mum's, uh, my, 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 my grandmother, uh, he would take my dad to the cells, uh, would sober him up, and uh, the next morning, he would take him back home again. And this happened for many, many years, and all this time my grandmother my grandfather continued to pray for my dad that he would come to know Jesus Christ. And one day, uh, in, in a worship service uh, in Keswick, some of you may have heard of Keswick, uh, it's a Christian conference place that um, for many, many years they've, uh, they've, they, they gather there annually. Uh, groups of people come on down, it's in the Lake District in uh, the north of England, they gather there. Uh, for Christian worship. For some reason, my father decided to go with his parents, much to my grandmother's joy. He went, and it was during the Keswick Convention in 1968 that he came to faith in Jesus Christ as his Savior and as his Lord. And it was because my grandparents had fervently prayed 
for him. Friends, that's the power of pervasive prayer. It's utterly, utterly transformative. Why? Because it keeps us in connection with the one who is our Lord and Savior and the one who does answer our prayers. I was going to speak of the importance of the practice of prayer. I think you, from hearing what I've said so far, understand that that's absolutely vital. Some of us have a hard time knowing how to pray, where to pray, when to pray. I encourage you simply to pray. There's not a particular time, there's not particular words that you need to say. Simply know that he is listening and he will answer your prayers if you will simply bring them before him. I could say a whole lot more, I'm not going to. But I encourage you to pray. To follow Nehemiah's example, to follow Monica's example, to follow the example of my grandparents and grasp the importance and the power of prevailing prayer, of pervasive prayer in your life and in the life of this church that we might know the transforming power of God. As Nehemiah says, the good hand of my God was upon me. May we know the good hand of God upon us. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. The hymn is